Well, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning to share the scriptures with you. If you would uh, make your way in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help in prayer. Lord God, you are the only God, the immortal, the invisible, the Savior of sinners. Lord God, I ask for your grace and help this morning to speak of that which cannot be described, the greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ, his power, his glory, his mercy. Lord, I can only do this by the help of your spirit. So I pray that same spirit that overflowed to the Apostle Paul, that you would overflow it to me as as the speaker this morning and to these who are gathered as the listeners, Lord, that you would make alive and apply the truth in this passage that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and he is able to do what he came to do. And so I asked this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we see in this passage that Paul describes his former life as a persecutor, a blasphemer, and then he recounts God's infinite mercy to him, not only in saving him and forgiving him and pardoning him, but also calling him to the the service of an apostle to preach the very gospel that he had once tried to destroy, to proclaim the glory of the Messiah that he once tried to blaspheme. And so I want us this morning to to look at how Paul is a trophy of Christ's saving power. And so, of course, uh, let me run a little bit briefly through the life of Paul, if any may not be familiar with it. But we are introduced to Paul, of course, in the book of Acts, uh, about the end of chapter 6 through chapter 8. 
And he, in that section, he's called by his Hebrew name, Saul. Right? We know him as Saul of Tarsus. And of course, when we are introduced to him in chapter 6, he is there approving of the killing of a Christian named Stephen. He's holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen to death. And then we see that Saul takes off on a streak of persecution towards Christians, hunting them from house to house, putting them in prison. And turn over to Acts chapter 26, and here we see Paul describing his life and his conversion. Uh, He's describing it himself as he is on trial. Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Right, so we see again that in our text when Paul says that he was a a persecutor, a, a blasphemer, violent, opposing Jesus Christ. He was the leader of the persecution against Christ and against the church. So how did this change? And salvation come about. How did Saul change into Paul? Well, again here in in chapter 26, starting in verse 12, he tells how it happened. In this connection, he says in verse 12, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. So, on his journey to Damascus, Jesus Christ himself appears to Paul, blinds him with his glory, and commissions him to be a servant, a a proclaimer of Christ and this gospel. So what has just happened here right, in this short little story? Jesus Christ has just taken his most zealous opponent, his biggest enemy, and saved him, appeared to him, forgiven him, and told him to go and preach the very gospel he was trying to destroy. The salvation of Paul is a display of God's grace, Christ's patience, and the Holy Spirit's convicting 
power. This shows the world both the great mercy of God and the saving power of God to change and transform even the worst of sinners. Turn back to our text in 1 Timothy. We see in this passage that Paul sees a significance in his own conversion. A significance that goes beyond just his own salvation. Verse 16, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul sees his own salvation as a display of the glory of God, the grace of Christ for others to see and not to take glory in Paul, but to take glory in the Savior who is able to convert such a sinner. So in this way, Paul is a trophy, I'm using this term trophy, of Christ's saving power. Right? What, what is a trophy? A trophy is something that displays someone's skill or success at a particular sport or a particular activity, right? We think of, you know, sports trophies, right? Bowling trophies. Uh, but I'm, I'm a hunter, so I think of hunting trophies. What are hunting trophies? Well, they're the animals that the hunter, you know, after killing them, he stuffs them and puts them on his wall, right? So back in Arizona, I was uh, into archery hunting, and there was a guy in the church that we were going to uh, who was a professional archery hunter. And one day he asked if I would like to come to his house and see his trophy room. Well, his trophy room was not a room. It was actually a house by itself. It was a, it was a pole barn filled with deer beyond number, elk, bear, turkeys, javelina, bighorn sheep, and even a fully mounted bison. I mean, this guy had more than, than you can imagine. My jaw dropped and I turned green with envy. Uh, but this, these trophies right, were a demonstration of this man's skill and experience as a hunter and as an archer. Right? It was proof. If anyone questioned if this man could hunt, they had nothing but more than to just come over to his house and see this trophy room. And all of their doubts, all of their questions would be answered. Right? And it is the same with Christ saving Paul. Right? So our text says Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But here's the question. Is Christ able to save sinners? Is he able to do what he came to this world to do. And Paul is saying, look at my life. I am exhibit A that Jesus Christ is well able to save sinners. He says, he's saying, recording this in scripture for all to see. He, he, he has the idea that future generations of Christians 
will look to him as an example of Christ's saving power. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want to look at three ways that Christ's saving of Paul is a display of his glory and power as a savior. So number one, through Paul's conversion, Jesus Christ displays his infinite power to convert, right, to save even the most hardened and blinded of sinners. All right, in first, here in our text, 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. All right, Paul, like many of the Pharisees, was absolutely blinded to the truth of who Jesus was. He did not believe he was the Messiah. He, he was doing everything in his power to convince others he was not the Messiah. He was blind. Blind to spiritual truth. Blind to the identity of Jesus Christ. He thought, Paul thought he was doing God a service by opposing Jesus and trying to stamp out Christianity. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul was intensely and violently opposed to Jesus Christ. And we see this in the skepticism of those who didn't want to believe that this Saul of Tarsus actually became a Christian. Remember? The Lord speaks to Ananias and he says, Ananias, go and pray for this man Saul. And Ananias says, no, 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 you don't understand. He's come here to arrest us, to, to kill us. Right? And remember when, when Paul goes to Jerusalem and it says the, the believers would not receive him, not believing that he had actually become a Christian. His reputation as a hard-hearted enemy of Jesus Christ was notorious. Can Jesus Christ save such a person? Can he save people who are hard-heartedly opposed to him? Can he save people who are spiritually blind, who, who have no thought of a future life, who have no thought of heaven or hell, who have no thought of God? Where are you going, Daniel? Okay. Can Jesus Christ save such a one? Yes. Paul's spiritual blindness and intense opposition to Christ was no obstacle to the saving power of Jesus Christ. Just a flash of Jesus' glory and power was all it took to bring this hardened sinner to his knees in humble submission to Christ. Look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 39. John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Right? Jesus says, I came into this world that those who do not see, who are spiritually blind, may see. And that's exactly what he did to Saul. Spiritual blindness, ignorance, just plain stupidity is no obstacle for Jesus Christ. He says to the blinded, see, and they see. He opens their eyes. He causes them to understand spiritual things that they did not understand before. He he does it by his own power. See, know, understand. Now, what about this stubborn human will? Is this the kryptonite of Christ? The human will? Jesus longs to save sinners if only they would receive him, choose him, or accept him. But since they don't, Jesus stands powerless, unable to do anything without their consent. No, not at all. Look at how Jesus conquers Saul of Tarsus. There's no question. There's no debating on the road. When Jesus appears to Saul on the road of Damascus, there's no debate. Paul doesn't start arguing with him. Jesus offers no altar call. Jesus claims Saul as his own. And he gives him instructions on what he is to do. And Saul says, yes, Lord. The human will is not an obstacle to Jesus Christ. He gives new hearts. He gives new wills. He regenerates dead hearts. The point we see here. Now again, this obviously Paul's conversion is not typical. Right? This is an extraordinary conversion. Yes. But the point that we see is the power of Jesus Christ to convert and to change even the worst of sinners. And that is true of every conversion. No matter the circumstances. Jesus Christ opens the spiritual eyes to see the truth. He conquers stubborn wills so that we bow in humble and joyful submission to the Savior. And we see this in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It's the story of of Lydia. I'm going the wrong direction. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. So when Paul is preaching there in Philippi, Sixteen, verse 14. There we are. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. And again, this is true of every conversion. Whatever time, whatever experience it was, whether you were 12 years old, 27 years old, 75 years old, whether it was a dramatic conversion or the most ordinary thing, the opening of a flower, the flower of your heart to believe in Christ, it was all done by Him. Did you seek? Yes, you sought. 
You sought him because he first sought you. Christ has the power to change any heart, to open the blindest of eyes to believe, to repent and be saved. And I want to apply this truth especially to those who have been praying for the salvation of friends or family for a long time. Don't give up in prayer. Daniel, walk. They may seem to be far away, but they are not beyond the power of the Savior. Don't give up in prayer for lost loved ones. He is able to save. Second thing we see, through Paul's conversion, Christ displays his infinite power to atone for and forgive even the worst of sins. He shows his power to atone and to forgive the worst of sins. Now, yes, we see in our text back in 1 Timothy, Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, violent opponent, Paul was also a Pharisee. He lived very strictly in obedience to the law of Moses. Why does he call himself the chief of sinners when he was such a strictly religious person? What is the seriousness, what is the heinousness of Paul's sin that makes it so amazing that Jesus Christ would forgive such a person? Well, again, Paul describes his life as blaspheming, persecuting, and opposing Well, who was it that Paul was blaspheming, persecuting, and opposing? Well, first of all, it was Christ himself. His blasphemies were aimed at Christ. He was slandering the very name of the Savior himself. He was spewing out blasphemies and coercing others to do the same. He was sinning against Christ. Secondly... Paul was sinning against Jesus' precious bride, the church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church. Think of that. What imagery does that bring to you? He was doing violence. He was molesting the bride of Christ. The one who is the apple of his eye. A person is most likely to harbor offense when his honor is offended or when his loved ones are harmed. Think of how the sins of Saul were especially hurtful towards Christ himself. Right? Do we feel generous towards those who slander us or hurt those that we love? No. We feel least generous towards those people. We feel hard-hearted towards those people. They get what they deserve. But how does Christ treat Saul of Tarsus? Does he say, no, I'm sorry, Saul, you've gone too far. You've crossed the line. No. He is willing to forgive the person who has blasphemed his name and and harmed his beloved bride. Paul says, yes, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not second-rate sinners, 
Not piddly little sinners. Not minor sinners. The chief of sinners. Paul says, look at me. I was the chief of sinners. I was slandering the name of the Savior himself. I was harming his beloved bride. And his mercy was wide enough for me. His atoning blood was effective enough for me. Christ atones for and bleeds on the cross for Saul of Tarsus. So what about you? Are your sins many? Are they serious? Do you know the seriousness of your sin? Do you wonder if Jesus Christ is willing and able to forgive you? Then look at this trophy of the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at Saul. Look at Paul. Christ forgave him. Christ bled for him. He will bleed. He has bled and will forgive you if you come to him in faith. Christ's saving power is wide enough. He is, oh, Hebrews, sorry, I'm about to say the next scripture. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost completely, 100%, to the nth degree. He is able to save completely all those who draw near to God through him. Now, thirdly, through Paul, Christ displays his power to keep and to preserve his people in salvation until the end. So through the life of Paul, we see Jesus' saving power put on display, his power to convert the hardest of hearts, his power to atone for the most terrible of sins. But we know from Jesus' own teaching, Matthew 24, the chapter right before what was read this morning, Jesus said to his disciples, the one, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is a necessary requirement of salvation to endure and persevere in the faith until the end. So, is Christ able to keep? Is Christ able to protect, to keep in faith those that he saves? It is not merely those who start the race well, but it is those who finish the race. It is not the plants that spring up quickly and then wither, but it is those who endure and bear fruit that are of God's planting. So does Christ have the power to finish the work that he starts in the elect? 
Does he have the power to carry them to the end, to bring to completion the work of salvation? I'll turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's another trustworthy saying of Paul. The one who began a good work in you, the triune God, who has begun a work of salvation in you, will carry it on, will continue the work until it is absolutely finished. He will not leave you. He will not stop. Right? See, this is why, this is why, if I might call it Calvinism, is so comforting. To understand that the work of salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Right? That he doesn't just bring us through the gate and say, good luck the rest of the way. You know, in Japanese they have a saying, gambate, do your best. Right? Gambate. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that for his people. He doesn't bring them to Calvary and then say, okay, good luck the rest of the way. Hope you make it. He continues and carries on. This work is his work. He is doing this in you and through you, and God does not leave his work half done. When I was young, I was notorious for doing that, leaving something half done. My dad would give me a project, go do this, go paint this, and I'd do it for a few hours, and okay, I'm going to take a break, and never go back to it. It doesn't get finished. But praise God, that is not how God operates with his people. He does not do something halfway. He is saving a people, he is saving all of those people, and he is saving them completely. You are God's project He is doing it in you, not because of you. And most of the time, in spite of you and in spite of me. He is doing it. He is doing this work of salvation. And if you have been a Christian for some time, I think this point is most helpful for us. Because our Christian journey is a lot like what John Bunyan described in Pilgrim's Progress. There are hills of difficulty in life. There are dungeons of despair. There are valleys of humiliation. There are temptations and trials that are way too many to describe or to list. And when we are in the middle of those things and under the discouragement of sorrow, we wonder if we're actually going to make it. We wonder if we're going to see Mount Zion. If we're going to see the Savior's face. We feel as if our foot might slip. As if we're just ready to throw in the towel ourselves. 
And in these times, we need to see that Jesus Christ's saving power is not just about the beginning of our Christian life. It's not just about our conversion. But it is also in every step of our life as a Christian. Christ carries us along. He is the vine that sustains the spiritual life of every branch. He is the life, He is your spiritual life who moves you. You know, again in Philippians, Paul says, It is God who works in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. And how do we see this in the life of Paul? We see this displayed in his triumphant statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Yeah, but you might say, well, but that's Paul, right? That's the Apostle Paul, of course. He finished the race, of course. He kept the faith. No, let me say it a different way. Jesus Christ kept Paul until the end. He, Christ, kept Paul. Christ didn't, Paul didn't finish the race because of his own spirituality. Paul didn't finish the race because of his own willpower and grit. But it was the grace of God in him, the power of Christ working in him and through him that carried him to the end. And so it is with every true believer, with every Christian. He carries on the work of the faith in you. Okay, does that mean you sit back and do nothing? No. It means you work. It means you labor. It means you strive to enter that rest. That striving is the grace of Christ working in you. Christ was able to keep him. So again, look at this Savior. We've looked at Paul's life, but I'm, I'm not pointing you to Paul to see Paul. I'm not pointing you at him to glory in Paul. I'm pointing you to Paul as a trophy of Christ. Look past Paul and see his Savior. And we could list many people throughout church history. It's not just Paul. Christ has saved many. All that he has saved are a trophy. You, your neighbor, is a trophy of Christ's grace and saving power. Look at this Savior. Is Is Christ able to do what He came to do? Is He able to save sinners? Yes, He is. Yes. He is strong enough. He is merciful enough. He is patient enough. And He will save those for whom He died. Know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He is still able to convert the hardest heart, forgive the most grievous sins, and to keep the most wayward child to the uttermost. All those who come to him in repentance and faith. And I pray that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that you would see this as the pledge of Christ. His body broken for you. His blood spilled for you. That He is pledging to save you, to keep you until the end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are a mighty Savior. And that's good because we need a mighty Savior. Because our hearts are hard, our eyes are blind, our sins are deep. And we are often weak and wayward and tempted and tried. But Lord, we look to you. The safety of the sheep depends on the shepherd. And you are the great shepherd. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you finish the work that you begin. You've never left anything half done. All your works are perfect, complete. And we thank you, Lord, that we, as your children, are your work. You are working in us, saving us for the glory of your name, so that when we do step in to your presence, we will give all glory to you. There will be no boasting, no boasting of anything in us, but only boasting in Christ, no glorying in the flesh, but only glorying in a Savior who is mighty to save. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pour out your grace upon us as we observe the Lord's table, that our hearts would be strengthened, we would be filled with joy that we have such a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.